Hello, everyone, and welcome to Invested in Our New Reality. I'm Manjula Salvaraja. I'm a technology journalist, radio and podcast host, former startup executive, and a national technology columnist to the CBC. And I'm thrilled to be hosting this season of the podcast. For the next several weeks, we're going to be focusing on the idea of scaling up through conversations that empower growth and success. As you'll hear, Season 10 features founders who participate in the Scale-Up platform, which is delivered by Invest Ottawa with the support of the Government of Canada through FedDev Ontario. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Sonia Mitar, talent acquisition lead at Ottawa startup Noibu, an error monitoring platform that powers e-commerce experiences for major global clients. Sonia, I'm excited to learn more. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great being here. So let's start at the beginning. What is Noibu? What is the Noibu platform and, and what does it do for clients? So Noibu is a cloud-based SaaS platform that helps e-commerce companies recover lost revenue. So essentially, the platform picks up any customer impacting bugs that prevent users from checking out or interacting with the website as planned. So a little bit of the why it's important. Well, currently about 13% of cart abandons are due to site errors, which represents about $64.2 billion problem for retailers worldwide. So the goal for us ultimately is to help e-commerce professionals bring that figure down to zero. That's a really high figure, 13%. So is it a platform that detects that that's happening or actually helps the company fix it as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So we detect it first. And in some cases, we will help resolve. But when we're talking about massive retailers, usually they have their own development teams. And so really what we're providing their development teams is kind of a roadmap to fixing the issue. Oftentimes when errors occur on any website, whether it be you know impacting revenue loss or elsewhere, a problem kind of occurs when you try to replicate the situation, right? So what we do is we actually provide the tools in order for the developers to have all the information so they can save time and not replicating. Um, and then ultimately, so they can fix the bug. Now, the other cool thing about our product is it actually prioritizes errors based on potential revenue loss. So you know, oh. or the companies know exactly what bug to hit first. Oh, that's really important. I mean, if I think of it in sort of a physical store format, it's like, you've already got me into the store. Obviously, I must be interested in doing something. But then when you hit the barriers along the way, it just seems like such a waste. And if a company knew which barrier to, to get rid of before the others, then I can see the, the revenue potential there. Okay, I'm getting it. I think that <laughs> you described it in such a great way. Now, your company got this fabulous accolade uh, last year in 2022. Nobio was named as one of Canada's top growing companies by the report on business. Huge achievement, but also what it does when you get these accolades is it's a lot to live up to. And then, of course, you know, you're going into the rest of 2022 and, of course, 2023 being a really volatile set of times for companies and especially tech companies. How is your company amplifying its growth after such an accolade but in these times? I think first and foremost, a strong product value proposition. So as previously mentioned about what we do, right? In such economic uncertainty, the last thing companies want is to lose out on potential actual revenue. So as we all know, right, every dollar counts. So a product like Noibu is a no-brainer in preventing immense revenue loss during an uncertain time. So we have the uncertain time. 
portion right now. And Noibu obviously will help kind of accue and accrue that, that potential lost revenue. Secondly, I think by staying humble and focused on our goals, if I'm being completely honest, when I look at our co-founders, they are constantly working on making Noibu and our product better. They're prioritizing, setting data-driven goals. And really that sort of behavior is infectious and makes the rest of the company hungry to define and meet the goals they've set out for themselves and for their team. So, you know, again, huge value prop in terms of our product and also the people and our founders, our leaders that are really setting amazing goals and amazing standards really for the people on our team to meet and hit their goals. That's interesting. You use the term uh, data-driven goals. What does that mean in a tech startup world? So data-driven goal-making to me is really, you know, using um, particular data points to make decisions. I can speak for the talent acquisition side of things, changing processes based on actual numbers and facts versus assumptions in terms of what that means for the business. Well, you know, if we have some sort of um, a sales process, we we can extract data points from it. If we see that things don't work within the sales process, well, then we need to change them. So where does it work? Where does it not work? And kind of making our decisions based on hard facts versus what we believe to be true and what we're assuming to be true. So I imagine in a sales process, for example, if you're looking at a at your pipeline, imagine, well, what is the amount of leaks that we're having in here? Or what are the close rates at this level? And let's try to optimize it based on data that we have. Exactly. And that can go across the business, right? You know, you can start in sales, you can go customer success. All processes, you know, should have some sort of data output. And so when we look at that data, we can you know, cross it to previous years, we can cross it to revenue, whatever it is, but you should be able to extract some sort of information based on that data. And using that data to set goals going forward should mean that you have better outcomes. I think the thing that you know, we ultimately annoy to stay away from or we try to stay away from is assumptions and you know, assumptive-based reasoning. It's okay sometimes to have a gut feeling, but for the most part, if we can root it in some sort of a factual, uh, you know, data objective, then we can be, again, really objective with what we're trying to achieve. So it's less subjective and more objective. Yeah. And you convince a lot more people when you when you don't start a sentence with a, I have a gut feeling that, yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, I, I can understand the data-driven approach when it comes to the sales process. I can understand it when it comes to maybe customer success. I find it so interesting that, you know, I'm speaking to someone who's a talent lead and you're talking about using uh, data-driven goals across the business. So so let's get into talking about people and culture. You know, you've said before that there's a focus in the company on people and culture. How are you doing things differently when it comes to your workforce? And, and why is that important to you? Yeah, for sure. So I've worked at amazing companies in the past, um, you know, some pretty well-branded companies. And all of those companies have kind of, you know, branded themselves as being people first culture. For Noibu, you know, there are a few things that come to mind when we talk about kind of how we do things differently. So first and foremost, our team is actually people-led. So what that means is our company committees are employee-led. So the voice of our employees is at the heart of decisions made. You know, we try not to, as leaders, we try not to insert ourselves in a lot of those committees. We try to play a supporting role because we realized, you know, if we can get our employees to really take action then you know their voices will be heard. There's a higher likelihood that we're delivering or initiatives are going to be delivered on in a manner which reflects our employees and not just leadership. So that's number one. Secondly, simply put, we treat our people like adults by providing them flexibility, trust in the room to do their best work. So 
our expectations are incredibly high of everyone, but just as so, we treat them as adults and there's a high degree of trust. And lastly, I would say we operate with this really high empathy for the individual. So again, as I mentioned, we are very performative, but we also fundamentally believe that there's a human producing that output and that a human always comes first. Um, So it's a very interesting, I would say, juxtaposition of like, again, highly performative, but also this incredibly empathetic side for the human condition. An example of this, I just went through it. My grandmother fell ill a couple of weeks ago. She's in Croatia and Bosnia. Uh, I had to make a emergency trip down here. And I've actually been down here for three weeks, operating at probably about 70% of my normal capacity. And the company has been nothing but empathetic, uh, willing to help, checking in on me, seeing if I needed anything. And that just goes to show you, right, the human comes first. And I think that really is what sets us apart from other companies. Is your grandmother okay? She is. Thank you. Yes, we're actually traveling back tomorrow and she's coming with me. So I'm very excited. Yes. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's interesting if I, you know, compare the discussion that we're having with similar interviews that may have happened, let's say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't think empathy would have come up as often as it does now. And I think it's and this isn't the first uh, conversation on this podcast that we've had about empathy and how much it matters. But I think it's really important because at the end of the day, yes, it is a high performance environment, but you do want to make sure that when you bring someone in in the door and they understand your business and they love the product, you want to retain them. And, you know, there's only so far that stock options and, and you know, that whole risk reward, all of that stuff, uh, you know, there's only so far that that can go. I, I think that the empathy does matter. It's it's very interesting to hear it also from a talent lead person. So, so let me <laughs> ask you, you guys have ambitious plans. Noibu is now in the scale up part of your entrepreneurship journey. What is the role that your talent acquisition strategy plays in this part of the journey? I think the obvious response to this is without the people to get the work done, you know, the projects done that we set forth, we simply won't meet our goals, right? We might come close to achieving some portion of them, but we definitely won't exceed it, which is ultimately uh, the goal. So, you know, we play a talent acquisition that is plays a huge, huge factor in getting us through that journey. You know, in the early days of any startup, hiring is a, you know, kind of a take what you can get approach. It relies heavily on networks and who you know. And oftentimes you'll fill roles with people that might not be the most qualified for the role, but, you know, they're highly ambitious and they can learn and things like that. And oftentimes as well, you'll have one role filling two or three jobs within the company. And that's completely normal. However, as the company scales, like Noibu is now, the team becomes more specific. The complexity starts to creep in. Roles are added to execute key projects in order to push the product and company forward. So in that light, you know, our TA strategy is ever evolving as we scale. But I would say in recent months, it's become highly focused on candidate experience, heavily leaning on sourcing candidates and aiming to attract as many you know, data points out of an efficient interview process. So it becomes more technical it again, you know, focuses a lot on data points versus gut feelings, you know, and, and assumptions. And so it really does play the strategic role. And let me be the first to say, and for pretty much any talent acquisition leader out there, uh, you know, it, it is not for the faint of heart. Again, if you don't staff the team properly, the goals aren't met, right? And so it is a crucial, a crucial role to fill, I would say, within a company at any journey, but especially within the scale up journey. I look at the environment now we're talking, we're in the first quarter of 2023. It's been 
quite the last 12 months or if, if we can yeah. look back to three years. So you've had the pandemic, you had that market where, you know, uh, startups were just roaring money, at least for some companies was kind of flowing in through the door. And then all of that kind of became quieter investors, uh, you know, became a yeah. little bit more cautious. We've had the labor market go, oh, there's too much demand. Oh, there's too much supply and go back and forth. What does it look like now for the labor market in tech? At least what are you seeing? Some of the interesting things that you're seeing. It's been a really interesting time. And the shift, like you mentioned, we went from exorbitant compensations, uh, you know, <laughs> limited, yeah. like just things going wild, not able to attract talent, not able to get them because all of a sudden, you know, remote was this universal thing. And so U.S. companies were able to scoop out Canadian employees and pay them, again, exorbitant <laughs> compensation packages. And then overnight, it's like everything just dried up. And then all of a sudden, people, you know, were being laid off in in droves and it's still occurring and it's very, very sad. And so, it, you know, it happened very quickly. I would say almost more quickly than um, the beginning of the pandemic when we saw kind of this slow shift towards an increased labor market and compensation and so on and so forth. So what we're seeing now is a little bit, it's kind of all over the place, if I'm being honest. We're definitely seeing, obviously, a lot of layoffs. So a lot of folks uh, eager to, to hop on and, you know, snag a, a new role. We're seeing a lot of, well, I'm seeing a lot of folks I'm still actually kind of reaching for those exorbitant uh, salaries just because it, mm. it was kind of the norm for so long and companies just not being able to deliver on that given, you know, the financial uncertainty that's kind of approaching slash has already landed. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 12 months to 24 months. And I think the the most interesting thing is I'm seeing a lot of people really kind of uh, making decisions based on the value proposition and non-compensation-based factors. So flexibility, hybrid work, different perks, you know, unlimited vacation, being able to just kind of be is a human right? as well as work. Yeah. That is fascinating. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Has that that trend, you think, those, those sort of, you know, different sets of things uh, that people are looking for, is that, would you say that's relatively new or that's been going on for the last two to three years? I would say that it's kind of been a mix. You definitely had folks that this is an attendant in their job hunting, which is just flexibility, you know, work-life balance, so on and so forth. But I, I'm noticing it way more now. I mean, I, I just, I got off a call with a candidate not long ago. That's it. No, I'll forego compensation to have work-life balance, like full stop, right? Because, you know, people are starting to wake up and notice that working from home, being able to spend time with family, well-being, mental health, all these things are so vital to them as a human and that their job is just an arm of their life, right? It is not their entire life. So I do think that it's becoming an increasing, an increasing trend is kind of is people asking me, what else does the company offer? What else is there in, in terms of compensation and, and the entire package? But I would say that for good reason, right? I think the pandemic kind of shifted us into this focus of I really need to take care of myself as a human being. And, and you know, those benefits are the means to take care of oneself. You know, Sonia, I have to ask, you know, here you are talking about strategies for, you know, this isn't just compensation isn't the only thing that you are offering people. You're trying to offer other things to be an attractive workplace to compete for that incredible, you know, one or two people that that could, you know, make or break a certain a part of your growth structure. So you have to get really smart. How do you stay 
updated? How do you stay creative as a as a talent lead? Like, do you have networks of people that you do you read a particular magazine? Like, how do you stay up to speed on these things personally? I mean, there's no shortage of information out there. And I, for one, honestly, sometimes I feel like there's like information overload and you could, you know, you could spend your entire day looking at this stuff. But, you know, for me, some of the um, resources like IO, um, so Invest Ottawa, um, there are incredible blogs out there that I follow. Uh, There are incredible Slack communities by fellow Canadian talent leaders that are just a wealth of knowledge. But truly, I think the biggest point of information for me is just speaking to candidates. The more candidates that I speak to, the more I get a good read of kind of what the trends are specifically, you know, in our region. I mean, this could be for talking about, you know, international markets. I'm sure it is vastly different than it is here. But, you know, I find that it gives a really good kind of overall general understanding, gives me a general understanding of what people are looking for. And then on top of that, you know, there's always surveys, there's always data that's being released and things like that. It doesn't hurt to look at those things. But uh, the candidate is, I think, the person that really holds the most amount of information for us to be able to make decisions and just extract data points from. I think it's so funny that, you know, we started out this conversation talking about we look at data, we create data driven goals. And then yeah. you, you you answer this question by telling me that, oh, yes, I belong to communities and Slack communities and I have a network, but I also just get data from the process that I'm running. I think that's so fascinating. <laughs> it's like a Seinfeld episode. We've gotten to the end when we've started off again. But, but exactly. you know, it, it does make sense, though, that what are the people that are walking through the door telling you and what are those things like if you jot down a couple of things that you're hearing again and again. Well, there's your there's the research that you need, right, to tell you what people are uh, what people want in order to join a company or to stay in a company. So, having said all that, I mean, we could chat for another hour, but at some point, I should let you get back to your very very busy busy schedule and your grandmother as well. What advice do you have for other startup companies that are looking to? on board and to retain top talent in in such a volatile market? You know, how do you think they should be thinking and perhaps even doing things differently to attract such talent? This is something that I'm very, very passionate about. So I'm so glad you asked. So there are probably a handful of things that I think are of of the utmost importance, but there are, I'm sure, thousands of things that I could cross off my list. The first and, and foremost, I will say is don't expect candidates to come to you. Um, so developing a solid sourcing strategy, albeit doing any well-thought-out sourcing, can help you find the best people for the role. Oftentimes, applicants are not qualified applicants in the highest regard. So sourcing really allows you to dive deep into those specific skill sets and really target individuals that are very well-versed or experts in whatever craft field that you're looking to fill. The next thing I would say is defining your employee value proposition. So just as much as a product value proposition is important, an employee value proposition is is crucial. So, um, you know, you want to be able to explain the why when reaching out to folks. What we're seeing these days, as I mentioned, is their needs are changing. So, of course, the financial aspect is is probably going to be very important to them, but the problem statement is kind of becoming key. So especially for more senior roles, right? They're looking at, is the problem interesting enough for me to bite my teeth into this for a few years, right? Uh, am I going to learn something new? So on and so forth. So kind of understanding that problem statement is going to be key. And then, you know, it's up to talent acquisition and any sort of content or marketing team to come up with a true and compelling why to present to those candidates. I'm a huge, I'm sure my team is going to laugh when they hear this, if they're, if they're listening to this podcast, but focusing on candidate experience, I feel like I'm a broken record sometimes, but you know, CX is becoming, or is an arm of employer branding that basically costs us nothing. 
So we know that people talk. So if we leave them with a bad experience, they will tell their network, right? If we leave them with a positive experience, they will tell their network. But who do we actually think is going to apply in the future? So this is something that I I fundamentally believe changes and makes average organizations, talent functions, you know, exceptional if they can get really hit, hit this home and really get it right. And it's something that startups can do. Again, it costs nothing, but really some time, attention, and that extra like little bit of finesse to really make sure that the candidate has a positive experience. I think lastly, transparency is key. So no company, regardless of what stage they're at, has everything figured out. You'd be shocked at how many candidates I've spoken to, especially recently, that have been promised things or flat out lied to by companies just to attract and sell them on a roll. But once they start, they actually see what's happening. That's not going to retain folks. And ultimately, it starts the candidate's relationship with the company in a distrustful way and just creates a negative experience. So, you know, I think those are things that all companies, but specifically startups can do Again, tied for cash, so uh, low cost, but really kind of shows um, you know the company culture, the values, uh, and and just kind of creates a better experience for candidates. It's interesting that you say that about about people talking about their experiences because I've been at multiple dinners where I've had um, I happen to you know know women in tech and and I'll be with you know a couple of women and someone will share you know, either being ghosted through a process or or just having a really negative interviewing experience where they were just not treated very well. And and they'll name the company because we're at a small little, you know, evening. And I always think, oh my goodness, what a mess up because now the story's gonna pass through, right? Pass through exactly. these networks of of, you know, five women that are here that are gonna pass these names along. And it becomes, well, you know, you you basically cut off and especially because you want to attract good people. And if they're already thinking, no, I'm not going to put myself through that uh, because it's kind, it's your calling card, right? The, the, exactly. the recruitment process is your calling card in a way. For anyone out there, by the way, who's ghosting someone, please don't do that. <laughs> recruitment process. Yeah. It's the basic thing you shouldn't be doing. I think that's like 101. Totally. I'll go even further, just really quickly in saying that, like, I, I get it. You know, like we as recruiters, as single, you know, single function uh, individuals, we come in contact with hundreds, if not thousands of candidates. It is, you know, a lot of work to get back to every single candidate. And we might mess up and we might forget or, you know, people might fall through the cracks. But even if it's late, it's better than nothing. Right. With that apology, at least there's just some acknowledgement to it. I personally, I hate ghosting too. Like it just, it drives me. I don't think the ghosting and also just not being engaged in an interview to me are like super disrespectful. It's like going out you know, to dinner with somebody and I'm just being on their phone the entire time. Like, well, why even bother? Right. So yeah. So anyone out there that's listening, just please stay engaged in those interviews and try your best to get back to people. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's really fair. Oh my goodness. We could speak for hours. Sonia, it's been such a pleasure chatting. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, first of all, and also just for frankly telling us about Noivu's journey so far. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation today and that you'll stay tuned for more great discussions with innovators and entrepreneurs in our next few episodes. For now, though, I'm Manjula Salvaraja, and I look forward to speaking with you again on Invested in Our New Reality. Mm -hmm.